right, it looks like we're going. Okay. Ivan, it's nice to see you. Yeah. I mean, I see your picture, but this is like first video. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. We've done a little bit of work together. Um, you uh, you were really helpful for an article of mine about uh, book banning, uh, yeah. talking about some of that from your yeah. experience teaching English comp. <laughs> yeah, and just in general, but yeah, I just yeah. on it. So yeah, I, I sent you a few articles, and you were like, "Oh, that's great!" So it yeah. worked. Yeah, that's fantastic. How's your morning going? Um, it's going so far, uh, you know, went for my morning walk and my, uh, little morning exercise routine and then got the kids to do their chores. And so now it's like, we're good. Got some time. I missed out on my morning walk cause I was, uh, I was cleaning the, uh, the church this morning. My, uh, you know, three time a year, little, uh, uh trip out there. <laughs> oh yeah. I, a, I got a vacuum backpack today. I've never done that before. Ah. Uh. Oh, yeah. I love that one because it's like the one they use for the, the chapel. Yeah. I try to get that one just because most people don't. They, they'll vacuum the chapel. But they'll just like kind of. I'm like, I, I'm like so obsessive. I get in between, you know, the cracks and underneath all the pews and just like everything. And so <laughs> like nobody else seems to do it right. So I have to do it. I have to grab that one first. Well, I, I guess we should tell say everyone oh. uh, Welcome. And okay. uh, thank uh, thank the twin the twin team for uh, for letting us uh, guest host today. Yay! Yes, this week in Mormons. <laughs> nice to nice to be back. That uh, name a lot. That's what it back said with you all. <laughs> My name's Chris Cunningham. Um, uh, I am the managing editor of Public Square Magazine. Uh, and uh, I've been a, a guest uh, here when uh, Kurt Frankham has hosted a handful okay. of times. And so he reached out to me about uh, guest hosting this week. You want to introduce yourself, Ivan? All right. I'm Ivan Wolf. I teach English at Arizona State University. My title was instructor, but I think they're changing the titles next year to something like instructing professor or something like that. So that I actually get to call myself a professor. Hey, that seems like a, uh, a promotion to me. Uh, if it came with more money, it'd be great. But <laughs> sort of like the end of the Jetsons movie where he's like, all right, you get the promotion, you get the new job title, but you don't get the raise in money. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and uh, other than that, you know, I published in some like pop culture and philosophy books. Most people, if, you've, if you've seen my name before, it's probably either in like Sherlock Holmes and philosophy, Battlestar Galactic and philosophy, Princess Bride and philosophy, books like that. Or if you read the credits on albums, you might find my name in, on a, when I lived in Utah, I managed to weasel my way onto a few Christmas albums. So well, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. So I'm on a couple, you know, just like a track or two on a couple Christmas albums here and there. So, and then you actually published an article this week, right? Uh, did I? Oh, oh times I, and seasons time maybe. Seasons, yeah. I'm yeah. guest blogging at times and seasons. I guess I don't really think about blogging, like publishing an article. So. Well, sure, sure. But still. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they asked me to do, they just, Jonathan Green at times and seasons sent me an email saying, hey, uh, do you want to do guest posting? I'm like, sure. I'm kind of blog homeless right now. Yeah. So. It was a great piece, I thought. So, I really yeah, enjoyed I, reading it. That seems to be the kind of thing that interests people. So, yeah, that one was on Sherlock Holmes. It uh, it synthesized my uh, my own love of English literature with uh, with that interesting take on uh, the history of the church. I was of course familiar with you uh -oh. know the the what little bit there? about Latter Day Saints and you know being the big bad in the back half of oh there we go uh... um, I forget the name of the novel, but being able to expand that and learning so much more about it was really cool and how you intersected that with some questions about. Um, about the about canon half. and what that means, yeah. I missed about half of what you just said because it like blocked, blinked out for a second. Oh, did it bleep out for a second? Yeah, just uh, I had just said that I really liked the piece because I had been familiar with you know this much of it about mm. uh, about you know that whole subplot about uh, members of the church being you know the so evil uh, in uh, the back half of and I forget the the name of it. Study in Scarlet. Study in Scarlet. There it is. Uh, but uh, expanding that, learning so much more about that, and of course how you we've done that question about the, uh, about the question of what is canon and comparing our question of that with, you know, the literary canon. And yeah, that was, that was fantastic. Yeah. It's a little funny because like I said in that article, the first time I read a study in Scarlet, 
it didn't have those chapters. It just skipped over. <laughs> and what's funny is I, I didn't know at the time. I mean, I was like, I don't know, nine maybe when I read it. And uh, so when I was later uh, was reading, got the complete works of Sherlock Holmes when I was like in my in high school. And so I just yeah. read from the beginning. And I was like, where are these chapters? I do not remember this part. <laughs> I do not remember this part at all. And so I went back and, and got that edition I'd read it from, which is a book my, my parents had. Um, and it actually had a little footnote saying, um, we've omitted some unnecessary chapters that have nothing to do with Sherlock Holmes <laughs> or something like that. In That's the really funny. And I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> which, yeah, yeah, it, it didn't need them. It was totally made sense without those chapters, so... Well, shall we jump into uh, into the the news this week? What people are saying, uh, yeah, in relation to the Church of Jesus Christ of uh, Latter Day Saints and, and oh, the larger community. Yes. Well, the Lori Daybell trial is a big one. I mean, the jury just had the verdict guilty in all counts, so that's what everybody yeah. else is talking about right now. <laughs> Indeed, uh, I have not uh, followed the uh, the Lori Vallow Daybell tra- trial very carefully or very closely. Um, but I do know that uh, she was a member of the church at some point and um, had left the church and for some pretty radical ideas. And it kind of led her down this path of violence. And yeah, it's uh, very it's, sad. I haven't I didn't really like know much about it when it first came up. People were talking about this. And I was like, what are they talking about? This sounds like Bizarro World or something like not even Bizarro World. Bizarro World was actually kind of crazy, but benign. This was just insane. And then I just, you know, I haven't really pursued it, but I've read a few things and um, yeah, like, wow, it's, it's crazy. I mean, yeah, the, the, this belief that spirits could kick your spirit, your, your evil spirits kick your spirit out of your body. And so that would make you a zombie and you had to kill the person who was possessed or something like that. And that's how they justified killing your kids. And I mean, it all happened in Rexburg. I mean, I went to, this dates me, Rick's college. So yeah, I was in Rexburg for two and a half years. Um, but wow, I never, you know, never thought, saw anything like that while I was there. (laughs) Really? I mean, so sad when that happened in a community that I think so many members of the church are familiar with. It really does, you know, cuts close to home. Yeah, I know. Cause it's like, I was like, it's Rexburg. Well, I mean, yeah, there, there was a little bit of, but I mean, that's almost anywhere you've got a huge concentration of members of church. You're going to have some crazy people, but you know. Indeed. Even in my ward growing up, I mean, we're in rural Alaska, though. I mean, you know, we sort of attract crazy people because it's rural Alaska. (laughs) (laughs) The the end of the road is Homer, Alaska is where I'm from. And it's like called the end of the road because it's like literally the end of the road. You drive the road, it ends the beach there. There you go. You know, there's nowhere else you can drive. But, uh, you know, so I mean, that people, the the people there tend to go there just because they're trying to get away from everybody. So, yeah, we sort of attract the interest. I should, I don't know, crazy people is the right word. The very interesting personalities, I should say. But, uh, you know, nothing like that, like what was going on with the Daybell trial. Just this whole crazy new religion that sort of had a five cousins, seven times removed relationship to the church theology. (laughs) (laughs) It, uh, it reminded me a little bit of the uh, the story that they uh, they dramatized the Andrew Garfield um, miniseries. Oh, the Under the Banner, year. yeah, under, yeah, Under the Banner of Heaven, and uh, how there were these people who had been Latter Day Saints but had been radicalized out of faith and it ended up leading to some violent consequences. Uh, yeah, Under the Banner of Heaven wasn't even this miniseries wasn't even like accurate very much about no. <laughs> It was probably closer to what the church does than the Daybell beliefs. So Yeah, that's probably true. I think it's I find it interesting how in the public consciousness these stories end up being connected with Latter day Saints more generally. Um because I mean these are people who 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 literally had gotten to a point where they felt like what they believed no longer fit in with the church and I've left clearly uh, anyone can look at their beliefs and recognize that they're not church beliefs. And yet it still feels like in the sort of Mormon moment too, that seems to be painting Latter-day Saints as backward and violent that these stories end up kind of getting smushed in into this larger narrative. 
Yeah, when I was in when I was in graduate school, go school at University of Texas Austin, getting my PhD. Um, I remember I was teaching this class, and the class I was teaching, um, they let us propose our own particular um, topic, and the topic I did was on uh, media bias, like what is media mm-hmm. bias, how do you define media bias, that kind of thing. So we were we were doing a thing on like the, there was a presidential election going on at the time, and it was still in the primaries. So uh, Mitt Romney was running, but this was when. Uh, it was McCain Palin for the wound up being the uh, Republican ticket. But this is before that. This is when it was just still the primaries. And so I was like going over like, OK, so, you know, the media tends to like to reduce people down to one particular characteristic. And so, like, who, mm-hmm. you know, we went through all the candidates. Like, what's the one thing you think of when you see this person? So we're going through all the, you know, the candidates and, um, you know, McCain's the maverick and, and so on. But like, OK, here's Mitt Romney. What's he? And they're like, oh, he's the Mormon. And I'm like, OK. And then one of my students goes. Mormons scare me. I'm scared of Mormons. And I was like, well, there might be a Mormon in this class right now. And he's like, I doubt that. <laughs> so I was just like, well, we'll just move on. And But after class, I had him come over and I was like, you know, I'm, I am. I was like, I didn't want to bring him to class. I didn't want to make it like a big deal or anything or be like, I'm taking you down. But I was like, I am. And he's like, really? But what about polygamy? Yeah. And I was like, oh, we don't do that anymore. And he was like, really? Are you sure? <laughs> you know, I mean, it just, just sort of helped me think that, yeah, people don't, they, they just sort of get the one idea in their mind. And it's like the, the Chiamani Abaducci, I hope I pronounced your name right. Uh, the TED Talk where she talked about the, the danger of a single story. Um, where she's like, it's not so much as stereotypes are untrue, it's more they're incomplete. But we just sort of tend to focus on that one particular um, story about some group and then that, that group becomes only that one story, and we never, like, try to figure out anything else about them. And that's that's a problem. It's uh, it is our church and our culture. People just sort of have this one idea, and they never really bother to find more about it. There was another big story this week about a former member of the church, uh, Heather Armstrong. Yeah. Um, she committed suicide, and yeah. the New York Times wrote a... Uh, an obituary for her. And in the headline, they referred to the faith that she was no longer a part of <laughs> that. Apparently that this was still a notable part of who she was, was that she wasn't um, a Latter-day Saint. It, uh, well, apparently she wrote about that. I just, the thing is, it's funny. She is did. Like, yeah. Um, again, on my social media feed, suddenly when she, she died, it just popped up everywhere. And I was like, I don't think I've heard of her before. And usually I feel like I'm, I follow a lot of the, the websites and blogs and social media feeds for church related stuff and even just Mormon culture in general. And if I had come across her, it just sort of didn't register. I was like, I have no idea. I've never read anything by her. I, I don't recall hearing about her. I mean, I've probably seen stuff and just didn't register, but yeah, yeah. I was totally like, I have no idea who this is. She was really in that mommy blogger space, so I don't know that she had a lot of crossover with kind of the blogger knackle kind of content. Yeah. What's um, funny is the uh, Millennial Star, where I used to blog, um, yeah. at one point we were actually considered a mommy blog. Um, we were actually listed as, I shouldn't say considered, we were still sort of the conservative blog sure. before it went all crazy there. But uh, for about probably 15 years ago when I was still there, um, we actually had a mommy blogger join and she like did 80% of the content for a while. And so hmm. people, we were listed on mommy blog lists and people would refer to it as the, the mommy, a mommy blog, because we had this, this mass, this, this really prolific mommy blogger for a while. Oh, how interesting. <laughs> so I, uh, that's about the, that's the closest I've come to that universe, but yeah, I don't usually inhabit that universe. So. Yeah. It's such a tragic story. You know, there's, um, I've had, some experience with suicidality and for me, religion has been such a core issue. And of course the, the bulk of the research supports this, that, you know, religiosity is a huge protective factor mm-hmm. against suicide. Um, I remember someone asking me about the significance of my garments. And for me, that's one of them, right. That I can be kind of reminded to this, this connection that I have to this, to this mission that I have, to my values, and I carry it with me always. And I have always felt that that's been a huge protective factor for me. Um, and I have to imagine that, that leaving a faith community really does 
make you feel adrift. And uh, anyway, just a lot yeah. of a lot of right. sorrow for her. And and anyone who does this is obviously not not in the right mind. And what a sad situation for her. Uh, yeah, her family. Just a difficult topic. It's it's unfortunately been way too weaponized lately. I think you know everybody tends to use suicide. Oh, you know. Somebody committing suicide is definite proof. I mean, like I even saw people with with the, the, the you know Armstrong, like, well, that shows that leaving the church is just gonna is gonna screw up your life. Well, yeah, okay, but I, I, I don't want to make a direct link causal link between her leaving the church and committing suicide. You know, no, you, no, of course not. You do that against us. You know, somebody who was a member of the church commits suicide. Well, it's because they were a member of the church and they had so much pressure to be good or whatever. And I, you know, it's a complicated issue, mental health, so much else going on. That, but yeah, like you said, I mean, one thing I love about, I mean, even though I teach English, one thing I love about, I, one reason I, I sort of half joke, but mostly seriously, um, with state and academic was so I could have access to all these research databases of academic work. And, you know, anytime I look it up and just check like what the latest research on suicide, tons of studies show there's a direct connection between, you know, being an active believing member of a, a religious community um, and reduced risk of suicide, but it doesn't pre- prevent it entirely, but it is definitely reduced the risk, but where yeah. the correlation or causation is it like people who are less likely to commit suicide also will be more likely to be committed. You know, I don't exactly. know. You, you can't really get the causation there. So. Yeah. You can't really run a double blind study on suicide. Can you? No, wouldn't be very ethical. And even then <laughs> wouldn't be sure you had all the right factors controlled for, but I, uh, yeah, no, it is important. You know, a lot of people who've worked on this say it's really important when you discuss suicide to not ever reduce it down to one factor uh, that can actually result in an increased contagion. Right. Um, that if you say, oh, you know, if if this is what's causing suicide, then people who are in that situation may commit suicide more often thinking that they're now part of this cause and it can kind of push people in that position over the edge. So I yeah. appreciate you saying that. Well, should we uh, should we transition to something a bit lighter? I know oh, yeah. the yeah, Salt Lake right. Tribune wants us to talk about caffeine this week. Oh yeah, caffeine. The Salt Lake Tribune had that thing: is caffeine against the word of wisdom? Yeah, I always thought that was funny that it was a huge deal. I say so go back back when you know BYU started selling Coke or Pepsi or whatever it was. I don't know. It's yeah, coffee beverage. Um, and they had like a like huge article about it. And it was this big deal, and it was all over the web. I was like. You know, actually, they've been selling caffeinated beverages for decades. Because when I was back at BYU, yeah, selling uh, Guaraná, like some Brazilian soft drink, okay, loaded with caffeine. Ah, interesting. It because it was called Guaraná and didn't say caffeine on the label. I guess it was, you know, you know, you get a lot, lot of return missionaries from Brazil. Apparently, were requesting it, and so the BYU bookstore was just carrying it in their uh, little convenience store or whatever. I remember seeing it and going, that thing is loaded with caffeine. That is got more caffeine than, than Coke, I think, you know, uh, but they were selling it at BYU. Just, I guess nobody knew enough about it except people from Brazil. <laughs> How interesting. So, you know, to me, it was like uh, them finally getting Coke is just admitting what they've been doing all along. They've just been having plausible deniability, I guess. <laughs> you know, I, I find the caffeine against the word of wisdom discussion interesting because it seems to be engaging in some real work of trying to identify what modern revelations mean and why they exist and and then how that should apply to our behavior. I wish we spent as much time uh, on uh, things of greater depth uh, diving or, or things of greater importance to the way we live our lives uh, as we do on, on, on the word of wisdom, because I kind of like this level of analysis and saying, well, we do know we're not supposed to do this. And why is that? And does that implicate other things? And if we were that careful uh, and dedicated with everything, I think we would, uh, we'd probably have a more robust uh, theology, I guess, and, uh, and probably more individual adherence, I would imagine. Well, I mean, yeah, there's there's two things. Like, I mean, trying to define it as a specific reason, like, I think the word of wisdom is multifaceted. There's so much more than just health. And when we reduce it down to, like, just a health thing, for example, it's like why I have people who, who will justify pretty much anything as long as they can find a scientific study somewhere that says it's healthy. 
mm. and then they'll you know drink red wine or whatever you know if you want to drink red wine fine do it but just don't don't try not to pretend you're actually keeping the word of wisdom when you're doing it you know? <laughs> but like with caffeine specifically i remember growing up yeah my, my my parents used to be like caffeine is like evil you know i remember somebody yeah. gave us a once when i was a kid we got somebody gave us just a, some sort of gift pack and and it was like a six pack of like some sort of Pepsi drink, and it said on the label, 99.9% caffeine-free. And my mom was like, oh, but it's 0.1% caffeine, so in the trash it goes, you know, sure. or something like that. And and But then my mom got some really bad, um, I started getting really bad migraine headaches for a while, and the doctor told her to take Excedrin, which has caffeine in it. Yeah. She's like, no, it's got caffeine in it. The doctor's like, just try it. And she's like, okay, fine. So she took it, and boom, it was like the only thing that really worked. Aspirin didn't work. You know, it was that, well, I mean, yeah, it was, it was the, Caffeine plus aspirin or whatever it is that et cetera and has. It was that combination that just knocked her migraines totally out. So she was like, oh, okay, well, I can see some some uses for it. And so, I mean, yes, I, I don't drink soda in general myself. Like, I think it's been 20 years since I last had a soda. I think I've had maybe had one root beer in 20 years. That's it. <laughs> so I don't really like soda in general. But, you know, caffeine I'm not as opposed to just because there can be uses for it. No. Yeah, I, you know, I think my personal experience has been funny just because we didn't have caffeine growing up in my home because that's how my parents had interpreted the word of wisdom. So no Pepsi, Coke, you know, anything like that. Um, but by the time I was, uh, you know, by the time I was ready to leave home, it was clear that, you know, that this was clearly not the doctrine of the church. And while I was serving a mission, so many of my companions were drinking Mountain Dew. That's really the only season in my life where I was drinking uh, caffeinated sodas was uh, during this uh, during this time on my mission. So amusingly, the only time I ever had ca- caffeinated soda was, was while serving as a missionary. So it certainly doesn't seem particularly unholy to me. Uh, yeah, well, heck, the only time I've been in a bar was when I was on a mission, so... Me too. How funny is that? Yeah. We had this mining town in the middle of the mountains in Colorado. It was like a way on the edge of our area, uh, like two and a half hour drive, actually, just tracking down this uh, referral. And it turned out it was the person who owned the bar and lived above the bar. And we had to go into the bar to find her. <laughs> so we weren't there very long, but hey. We were walking past this bar and saw a check that had fallen out of someone's pocket on the ground. So we walked into the bar to hand it to someone so that they could have it. And uh, you should have seen the looks on everyone's faces, you know, while we walked in in our shirt and tie and badges into <laughs> this little bar, this tiny town in upstate New York. Of course, I, the only time I've been at a brothel was on my mission, too. But <laughs> again, another referral. Somebody called in for Book of Mormon and we were just like knocking the door and they said, come on in and we're looking for this person. Oh, she's upstairs. We're like, this looks really weird. We were both naive, you know, 19-year-olds didn't really sure. get it. And then we looked around and realized after about five minutes of looking around, realized exactly where we were. And we're like, okay, uh, we'll, we'll just call later. <laughs> Bye. I can think of no better place to share the gospel. Yeah. Well, there, there wasn't really anybody there at that time, so we didn't really see much. <laughs> but it became obvious. Once it got through our, you know, naive brains... All right, should we talk about Tucker Carlson? Ah, uh, sure. We can talk about Tucker Carlson. I, I, I find it, I don't know. I kind of find the whole um, controversy silly. But, I agree. Uh, Tucker is just such a magnet for controversy. If you're going to make a point, even if it's one he's made, just don't cite him i guess yeah find someone else who said the same thing <laughs> just talk about the person in general because i mean way back 2001 so or 2000 yeah it was before 2001 it was it was bush v gore yeah supreme court I yeah. that recount thing was going on and cnn started up this new show called uh back when i actually watched cable news after i just got so sick of it but called the spin zone and tucker carlson was their conservative and so I was watching it and I liked both the hosts on the spin zone. They were, they actually were very, I mean, they were very partisan, but they were very nice to each other. They were very polite. They, they, they listened to each other. They made their case, you know, occasionally they got a little snarky, but it wasn't too bad. So it was actually kind of like what I, if, if cable news were like that still, I might still watch it. Mm. So I liked Tucker Carlson back then. So we're talking about like 99, 2000 here, you know, um, 
Yeah, 2000. So um, I kind of liked Tucker Carlson, but then he moved to Crossfire, and I watched one episode of Crossfire, and I hated it. And I hated him after that, because <laughs> in Crossfire, it was just all about, apparently this is from the producers, because I read an article about it where the producers tell them they have to dial the personalities up to a 27 or something. Oh, okay. Have, they have, they're assigned the view they take. So like, it's not necessarily Tucker's view. It's the view the Tucker on Crossfire has, you know, he's like playing a character um, and same with the other side. So, you know, I hated it. It was just terrible. And I was just like, okay, whatever. And then, you know, the few times I've checked into Tucker since then, I've just been like, you know, yeah, he occasionally makes a good point, but he's doing it in such a way that it just, increases partisanship and increases separation and increases people hating each other rather than helping heal any divides. So I'm just like, yeah. I, well, at the same time, I think the general point about families the person was making was good. Just using Tucker Carlson as a springboard was a very bad idea. <laughs> so let me explain what happened for those who may not know why we're bringing up Tucker Carlson on, uh, on this podcast. Uh, the Deseret News um, published a editorial about having children and Tucker Carlson had said something like everyone should have Mormon levels of kids. Was that the quote? Uh, And so, uh, and so they use that as a jumping point to talk about um, having more children. And uh, Bethany Mandel was the, was the writer. She often talks about, about family issues the controversy is that uh, a lot of people were talking about Tucker Carlson this week uh, and some of the things that were revealed that he had said behind the scenes uh, during his tenure at Fox, uh, including what Axios, who wrote the um, the piece that was uh, attacking um, the Deseret News for having uh, this on, uh, was saying that Tucker Carlson believes in something called replacement theory. Uh, which basically means that white people are being replaced by immigrants and people of color. And so they were saying that his statement that we should have more children was, uh, was basically a racist, was saying we need to have more white children uh, because we need to make sure that a certain number of white people remain in the United States. Uh, and and so then using that statement to then say we should have more children, um, they uh, they were attacking the Desert News for not for not removing that quote. Yeah, so that's yeah. the basic background. Um, yeah. I'm a little familiar with this. I was uh, I embroiled myself in a little bit of controversy uh, recently. I published a study on Bulletin, which is just kind of like the blog part of Public Square, just kind of yeah. passing things along. And the person who would publish a study was a white supremacist and had done a lot of work uh, in uh, kind of the the eugenics space. And he had published something saying that Latter-day Saints, um, the more intelligent you are as a Latter-day Saint, uh, the more kids that you have, and that that was different than the population at large. I thought this was just an interesting finding Obviously, once I learned about this fellow's background, we uh, we took that down, not wanting to yeah. give any credence to his views. He threatened to sue us, which was interesting. And of course, uh, Twitter decided that I'm now a white supremacist, which, you know, I've been uh, publishing for 10 years and uh, finally ha- that happened. So I guess that's fun. So it's a very complicated space, um, certainly one that uh, even earnest people make missteps in. Yeah, I mean, it, it, sometimes you do, you find it like, oh, crap, I just cited somebody who's not worth citing or whatever. I know, right? Serious, serious, serious baggage that you weren't aware of. But at the same time, you know, you took it down. So that's one thing I just can't, don't really like about today's internet, Twitter mob, TikTok mob, whatever culture, is that people aren't allowed to make mistakes. Like, if you, okay, I made a mistake. Sorry, let me fix it. Nope, you are now evil and tainted forever. That's fair, yeah. Unless, unless you become useful to us again, and then maybe we'll forgive you. But you know, but I think, I mean, I think we have to look at someone like Tucker Carlson differently, right? Like this is not a, a single isolated mistake. This is a commentator who, who, like you were saying, has a long sustained history of divisive rhetoric. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, it's like the difference. Like when I tell my students, if you're going to cite somebody, 
usually you have to say a little bit about who they are. Like this is a professor of bioethics at City University of New York or something. Unless it's somebody really, really well known. Like if you're going to cite Barack Obama, you don't have to say former president Barack Obama. (laughs) Barack Obama said this um, and you're probably fine. And so like, yeah, with the guy that you uh, cited, you linked to, you would probably in one of my papers have to give some sort of like, yeah. But with Tucker Carlson, you can just say Tucker Carlson and pretty much everybody knows who we're talking about. And so there is a difference there. Something that I think has been interesting with with Tucker Carlson and I think is worth noting is in the recent Dominion lawsuit that Fox settled a few weeks ago, we saw quite a few of his text messages that seemed to reflect a lot of his views were in line with what he was sharing on his TV show. And it's it's this issue of audience capture, right? That if you have an audience who's tuned into you because they like what you say, you end up just feeding back to them what they want. And it ends up becoming this really negative reinforcing cycle where you can really almost radicalize yourself because you end up only saying the things that you know your audience wants to hear. And that kind of just leads you down this path. Yeah. Audience capture is one of those when I first heard the term and saw a video and I was like, oh, that explains that concept. I've been trying to figure out where I've just one reason I've never really been interested in being famous or getting out there and getting on all the podcasts and, you know, here I am on a podcast, but getting on all the podcasts and <laughs> publishing all the time is one, having to come up with new material all the time is just exhausting. <laughs> but two, um, I'm just not interested in, in like having to deal with the ramifications of being constantly in the public eye and people always getting in your case. And I just had too many friends I've seen like in the music realm or even the academic realm who start getting really popular and getting out there. But then it seems like the audience pulls them you know, like they, they get a certain group and they get pulled toward that group and they wind up having views indistinguishable from that audience when they you know, originally start out more moderate. Um, they wind up becoming more extreme over time. So it's just I'm just like, you know, I'm not really interested in going there. <laughs> I'd rather you know, it's one of the, the tensions we're always having to look at with with Public Square. Right. Yeah. Is that you always want to grow your audience. Right. And we've been very successful that way. But we found that by having sort of a first principles, right? Here's who we are. Here's what we believe in. And then you can't stray from those. It really helps you so that you're not tempted to kind of, oh, trample on on good ethical practices just in order to grab the audience, right? It's really easy yeah. to grab audience by making people angry. It's really easy to grab audience by making people outraged. Uh, and unless you start with these first principles that you're not going to do that, then mm-hmm. then you will. Then you will, because that's just the recipe for easy success in online uh, discourse. Yeah. Oh, I mean, even before online took over, I mean, it was the cable news. I mean, like with Crossfire well, yeah. and before they canceled it, you know, after the whole John Stewart debacle where he called the hosts out for being jerks. Um, yeah, I mean, that, the whole point of that show was just to get two people being as angry as possible at each other um, for an hour about different topics. And that's what drew in the ratings. And now that's moved online. And yeah, yeah. it's like one reason why, you know, the, the whole blogger knackle, since I've been involved with them for decades now, it's not really much of a thing anymore. But I think it fell apart in the end, because that's what happened. We just sort of started getting more extreme. And People were publishing articles that were more intent, more about making you angry at people who disagreed with you or whatever than mm-hmm. they were about, um, you know, when we started out, there was a whole idea of, of even though, you know, very, very progressive, very conservative, moderate, whatever, different blogs, there was a lot of crosstalk, people posted on different blogs, but then over time, it just audience capture, whatever you want to say, mainly because the, you know, the posts that got the most comments were the ones that stirred up people to get really angry. <laughs> Like I did a, a whole, I, I'm, I'm revising an old series of posts into a book right now. Hopefully I'll get it finished before the summer's over. Um, a short book about, um, about sacrament meetings. Um, but uh, I remember like, you know, each of those posts maybe got two or three comments. Whereas if I'd done something like another blog did, it's a defunct blog now where they basically said um, graduate students having kids is members of church or graduate students who have kids are just, just awful. They're terrible. They shouldn't be doing that. That thing wound up having like almost without, like the most comments, mm-hmm. of any post up to that point, you know, just hundreds and hundreds within days and just kept going and going and going. And actually that one was made me realize like, 
wow, it's more about outrage and anger and feeling self-righteous. And that's what gets the comments to clicks. And so I actually started pulling back from my commenting and posting a little bit after that, because I was like, I don't want to go that route. I don't want to start make, you know, trying to play for the comments and clicks just by getting people angry. You know, this conversation about audience capture and then what you were saying about Crossfire, where the um, producers were saying, hey, turn it up to 11, your personality, it almost seems like as it's moved out of cable news and online, everyone is a commenter. And this desire for increased audience means everyone is their own producer. Everyone's pushing themselves to be, you know, up to 11 in order to get that audience. And it's making us feel worse, right? Like who can pretend to be like those characters on Crossfire all the time? And that's gone from these characters that they were playing to we play them so often online. It's who we really are and it's how we really feel. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, like, well, we've gotten off track. What do you think? Should the Deadspin yeah. News have published uh, published oh, yeah. a piece with a Tucker Carlson quote in it? And uh, once they discovered that uh, you know these messages that Tucker Carlson had sent about replacement theory, should they have taken his quote out, or is this much ado about nothing? Yeah, so I, I think just in the sense that you know maybe if the Tucker Carlson got you thinking about it write the article, but I would myself, you know, again, what I would do is not necessarily what everybody, everybody should do. I would just not keep the Tucker Carlson quote in. Like I'd use it maybe as a springboard, but then I'd be like, okay, there's just too much baggage there with that name. Like I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. more about my students. I'm more about the people you need to most convince the people who don't agree with you. And you don't want to do anything that just chases them away in the first first yeah. paragraphs. And if, and if you drop a name bomb, like Tucker Carlson, you immediately signal, I'm really only writing for people who are already on this particular side here. And yeah. instead, you know, try to find some way to get them in and interested. And then maybe later you can bring something like that in near the end if you're very careful and you framed it. But otherwise, generally, just don't. Just just stick to the principle, you know? Yeah, I agree. I don't think I would have published the piece after it was published. I think what uh... – what Hal Boyd, who's the uh, the editor and chief over there, did saying, "Yeah, I mean Tucker Carlson. What did he say? Tucker Carlson has made our public discourse worse." I think was his quote. Uh, however, we think he made a good point here, and I think that's about right. Acknowledge that um, that this is someone who who's made things worse, but there was a reason you included it in this case. I don't think there's any reason for them to take it down because, yeah, we're always going to quote people who who have some baggage. Uh, he had more baggage than most, and which is why they probably shouldn't have done it in the first place. But but a retraction because someone you quote it just seems like a, a silly a silly podium to, to a silly lectern to pound yeah. your fist on. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, wait, I think he handled it as well as you could. I mean, I think the place to fix that is before it happens. Once this happens, it was fine. Well, hey, uh, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, <clears throat> some of the work that the church has been uh, up to around the world. Okay. A, uh, an interesting, excuse me. Yes. Oh. An interesting story about uh, a Jewish congregation in uh-huh. uh, the Salt Lake Valley uh, this week. Uh, I hadn't known about this story until the Salt Lake Tribune published this article. They, uh, there was a variety of uh, Jewish congregations from different sides of, uh, of the perspective, from you know, conservative um, Jews to, uh, to progressive Jews. And they formed one congregation 50 years ago, apparently. And yeah. uh, there were some challenges, but it's still working. And they had their 50th, 50-year uh, celebration this week. Yeah. Um, I, I like the the, uh, the the headline where they said uh, something like, this could only happen in Utah or something yeah. like that. I think that's true. I mean, generally, I mean, again, I'm, I'm hardly an expert, although I've done a lot of reading. But again, you know, I've, I've read lots from both Reform and Orthodox and Ultra-Orthodox and, and Conservative. There's actually a lot more distance between the Orthodox and the Conservatives than there is between the Conservative and the Reform, from what I can tell. So... You know, generally, there's not a whole lot of common ground they can find there other than maybe a generalized common Jewish identity. But in Utah, where you have a dominant religion that is not Jewish, it's much easier to define yourself against, yeah. you know, the dominant culture um, than it is 
when you are in a, an area where there's a lot of you sort of like, so the, you know, but so that's why it seems like it seemed why it probably worked really well because like it said, it said in the headline, this could only happen in Utah. And I'm, you know, I wouldn't say only in Utah, but the, yeah. it makes it more likely. <laughs> I, uh, I think what I liked about the story, cause I agree with you, right? The reason it happened in the space is because they're defining themselves as not Latter-day Saints, right? But that's a, a major piece of, of that identity. And yet at this 50 year anniversary, uh, Elder Gong uh, attended that. Yes, it's clear that they're not us and we're not them. And yet there is this feeling of neighborliness and collegiality um, and congratulations for their success in the space. And I thought this was a great community and interfaith effort from, from Elder Gong. Yeah, no, we have to, I, I like the way the church has been doing a lot more interfaith outreach lately um, without watering down the, the church at all. They've just been, you know, we need to find more people of goodwill from everywhere because, <laughs> oh, so I said the other day, I was talking to a, an evangelical who was like, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I know on marriage and a few other things, uh, the church and ours, but, you know, I just can't, you know, get past a lot of that other stuff. And I was like, well, it's like, it's like the Lord of the Rings. What did that one character say? Our list of allies grows exceedingly thin or something like that. <laughs> At some point, you, you, you got to realize you need to start making some allies elsewhere because there's a, there's not, it's not like you can count on just sort of the general culture to be going along with you. <laughs> About 25 years ago, I lived in a town called Corona uh, in Southern California and our stake uh, was putting some efforts into public affairs. And so they applied to join the local interfaith organization, but we were rejected because the local interfaith organization was uh, Protestant Christian mm -hmm. and they determined that we were outside the group. And so uh, Claudia Wilson, who was running the public affairs there, decided to create a true interfaith organization in town. And so uh, our stake founded it and brought in uh, truly all, you know, all the different faiths that, uh, that were in the town. Um, the, uh, the Islamic community there came, the Jewish community there came, uh, the Hindu community there in town came, that was small. Um, and uh, the Catholic community ended up coming. And after we had done this for about three or four years and had great success with these great events, uh, really showing this unity, the, the churches from the other group ended up joining this interfaith group. And so she ended up kind of creating a true interfaith organization. So I think the church has, has had a lot of success creating true interfaith. And, you know, the U.S., we obviously have this great history of, you know, interfaith work and religious freedom. I was thrilled this week to see the interfaith efforts that the church was leading up in uh, Nairobi. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they were hosting the uh, the interfaith at uh, at the church there and uh, Muslim, Hindu and the Christian faith there all came to create a better sense of understanding. Yeah, no, I mean, the the church is doing it not. Yeah, not. I mean, with the ch with most of the church membership being outside the church, they're doing a lot outside the U.S. too. You know, sometimes we get way too U.S. centric focused, <laughs> you know, even yeah. though less than I mean. Half the member, I mean, it's more than half is outside the U.S., which means I would, you know, the majority is not in the U.S., although it's sort of like a plurality, I guess. I don't know the exact numbers. You know, the single biggest country would be I don't know, um, from members. But still, we tend to get way too focused on that. So, like, a lot of times I see, you know, people make these arguments. And I'm like, you know, to a saint in Kenya, like I had a friend um, in graduate school who was from Kenya who would he'd actually join the church because. Um, somebody at a gas pump had approached him. He was just filling up his gas and somebody across the other gas pump just brought up the church and that, that's what got him interested. But anyway, he's, he's from Kenya and, you know, just like all this stuff that we're so obsessed with just sounds like babbling nonsense to them. Yeah. And, and they're just like, you know, why are you guys all up in arms about this? There's other more important things, you know, especially like the charity outreach, like, well, you know, the, the, the things the church has been doing with the, uh, you know, the long-term help with the, 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 uh, in Turkey with the earthquake relief and, yes. you know, uh, 
flood the community, flooded communities and things like that that, that were in the, in the news this week. So those are the things that, that they're most interested in, um, as opposed to like some of the other stuff that just seems to take up most of the attention for the very online Mormons. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. That when we're talking about what the news in the church is, we do end up getting, Oh, people are arguing about um, what the Deseret news published, or they're arguing about caffeine, but it seems like at least in my experience, most Latter-day Saints, what they're doing is they're serving their friends and their neighbors. And I love it when, you know, the church certainly does publicize, publicize, well, that's a, real word I just made up there. <laughs> uh, the church does publicize its um, some of its work, right? The story about what happened in Kenya was something that the, the church newsroom shared, which was fantastic. I wouldn't have known about it otherwise. Uh, but there's a lot of fantastic things that happen that we don't find out from the church uh, at all. This, uh, this story about um, maternal health for, for Mother's Day in these communities that have suffered with, with floods. The church didn't advertise this at all. This was something that had come out in the Idaho State Journal. Just some other organization trying to figure out uh, what's going on. Uh, and uh, so this work that was being done is in uh, Cote d'Ivoire uh, and the church is doing efforts there. And one of the things, in fact, we published something on Public Square yesterday about uh, maternal health. Uh, and efforts that Latter-day Saints, not just the institutional church, but Latter-day Saints have done all, all around the world. And this story in particular uh, demonstrates this, is they go in and they teach people how to have better maternal health. So they're not just offering it, they're building up systems and they're teaching the teachers, right? So that they're now teaching the generation, but then they're teaching them how to then train the next people so that they're creating sustainable ways of of improving maternal health and all of that work that was being done and not a, not a word of it shared on the official church website. It's some journalist up in Idaho who's just decided to chase down a story or, or another one this week that happened uh, down in Florida. Um, the, uh, the women's club there um, was doing some, uh, some grants for, or, or the, uh, one of the stakes there in Florida gave a grant to the women's club to provide diapers and formula for the people there. North Carolina this week launched, was it Wilmington, North Carolina, maybe, uh, launched a, uh, a new food bank. And so when you launch a new food bank, you need a lot of food really fast. And the church shows up with 40,000 pounds of it to kind of allow this thing to go. And none of that um, showing up on um, on the church newsroom. It's possible yeah, that was on the church newsroom one, but like over right by where I live here, there's this place called the House of Refuge, which is like a yeah. temporary housing. It's it's actually like old Air Force housing from like the 1940s. I mean, this stuff is like almost 100 years old, but um, it's 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 like temporary housing for people like leaving abusive relationships, homeless people getting back on their feet, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and all the stakes around here constantly do service there. My ward just did some stuff there, like cleaning up and repairing the playground for the kids. You know, that stuff never makes the news, you know, but if somebody in my ward were to do something, you know, embezzle some funds, it'd probably be all over the news. <laughs> but they go, they go clean up the playground at the House of Refuge and, you know, nobody really cares. Um, and it's, it's well, I have the Lord yeah. care. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's like this, this kind of service stuff happens all the time, every day. And that's what's, and like I say, going getting back to the international thing, you know, to the saints in, in Africa and Southeast Asia, that's the stuff they really care about. Um, the, the, you know, editorial choices in Deseret News or, uh, you know, analogies in BYU speeches, they, they don't care. They're just like, why are you so upset? And, you know, I don't blame news organizations for focusing on those things. I think sometimes we take for granted the good that is being yeah. done. Um and yet, I think it's important for us to recognize that what news organizations are reporting um, largely doesn't reflect the the great um, breadth of what's happening in the world, and especially when it comes to the church. It's like we're talking about this week in Mormons, right? And this yeah. week in Mormons, 
most were serving their friends and family and neighbors. That's what most of us were doing this week. Uh, and uh, and I love these stories about the little the little ways and the different communities. And I, I looked up that uh, the one in Wilmington, and yeah, that wasn't a church uh, publication. Church didn't put that on their newsroom. It was just the local news station being like, "Hey, new food bank, and here's what happened." And only crossed my feed because you know I have some Google alert for Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and it gets a mention in there. And um, anyway. Yeah, it's, no, it's just like, it's going back to that media bias class I talk, taught way back when I was in graduate school. Well, it was a long time ago now. Uh, I mean, one of the textbooks talked about the whole, uh, if it bleeds, it leads, tight, you know, mentality. Yeah. And, and the the uh, man bites dog, like dog bites man, big deal. Man bites dog, that's a news story. But the problem is, of course, is that you tell enough man bites dog stories and everybody starts thinking men are going around biting dogs all the time and dogs don't bite guys, bite men anyway at all, you know. Yeah. And, it's the same, like, if it bleeds, it leads. Well, everybody thinks we're bleeding all the time when we're not, you know. But that's the sort of, like, there's a very distorted picture. But, again, like I said, outrage sells. Outrage gets the clicks. Um, quiet acts of service don't. No. And perhaps uh, as we come to a close, we should end with uh, with the good news of this week, that, uh, that Jesus died for our sins and uh, we can be forgiven and return to live with our Heavenly Father. That's the best news of the week. Oh yeah, that's like uh, at first things. I remember reading an article where the uh, the author was like, "I was really depressed about the news this week, so I called up my friend and said, give me some good news.'" And the friend said, "Christ is King." And I said, "Amen, Amen." There we go. That's that's the really good news. So, Ivan, it was nice to see you. Nice to chat with you about what, uh, what happened this week. And thanks again to the the Twim team for uh, for giving us a chance to co-host. And hope everyone enjoyed. We will include. The links to all the articles that we uh, we talked about in the uh, the show notes or comments or you know whatever platform you're you're viewing this or re- uh, hearing this on, and uh, you can uh, learn more about me uh, and the work I do over at uh, publicsquaremag.org. Uh, and Ivan, do you want to send any uh, uh, people just, anywhere? They they can go to Times and Seasons. I've been po- I've been guest posting there lately. So sounds great. My current home. We'll see if I stay there. If I move on, I don't know. Right now, I'm just a guest. So fair enough. Well, it was good to see you, and uh, talk to you later.